How sweet is the shepherd's sweet lot. From the morn to the evening he strays. He shall follow his sheep all the day, and his tongue shall be filled with praise. Welcome to the Troubadour Podcast. Today we are going to be reading three poems from William Blake's Songs of Innocence. Now, remember the Songs of Innocence, originally published in 1789, excuse me, 1789, was combined with new poems in 1794 called called Songs of Experience. And of course, after that, they were called the Songs of Innocence and Experience. Today, we will be reading three pastoral poems from the Songs of Innocence, The Shepherd, The Lamb, and Spring. And I wanted to explain briefly why they are called pastorals. And this will help set up what these are. Pastorals are an important tradition in English poetry and in poetry in general. In fact, they hearken all the way back to uh, Hesiod and Virgil, the great poet. So Hesiod uh, comes way before Virgil, by the way. Hesiod wrote something called Work and Days, or at least we think he wrote it. Like Homer, we know nothing about Hesiod. He also wrote the Theogony, which told a lot about the um, origin of many gods. So many of the stories you know, if you know any stories of the original gods from ancient Greek, they came often from Hesiod. And then, um, you know, he's contemporary, or we think around the same era, same time period as Homer. Virgil comes hundreds of years later in the Roman era. He wrote the Aeneid very famously, but he also wrote many books of poetry and two important ones are the Eclogues and the Georgics. Now, these two poems are about uh, pastoral life. They're about life outside the country. Now, it has been pointed out very ironic that um, this man, who was a very urban person, and in fact, many of the writers of um, these pastoral or Georgic poetry which again is writing about farm life, about shepherds, about gleaning the land, you know, what that's like, are written often by city folk, which is an interesting irony. And um, often it's a criticism of city folk. And we're going to talk about what some of the issues can be in, uh, in this case. So just briefly, what you need to know, all you really need to know about pastorals and georgics, which are a tradition that stem primarily from Virgil. Pastor, here's the two, like, just think, hold it in your mind this way. I'm actually going to show you some pictures. This might, this will hopefully help. So a, um, there we go. A pastoral is usually going to be quaint, romanticized. Um, it's going to be about nature, but it's going to be about nature without any negative things. So you're never going to see death, disease, poverty, plague, you know, any of the, the um, starvation, famine, a bad crop. You're never going to see stuff like that. You're never going to see the difficulty of, um, or you're rarely going to see it, especially for the generic tradition. So we're talking about the main tradition here. We can, we'll talk about William Wordsworth, um, which I've talked about a lot before. He has written pastoral poems that were kind of a critique of this. 
and they, um, you know, he wrote a poem that you should check out and I might do in the future called Michael, a pastoral poem, but it will, you'll see what a Georgic is in a second. It kind of combines, there's a stress between these two poetries and he's, uh, these two forms of poetry and he's combining them and, uh, commenting on them in the way that he combines them in the characters that he creates in that it's a somewhat longer, I, I call it a long, short poem. So it's not like you know, the Iliad, but it's definitely not two or three stanzas. The poems we're reading today, I put them together because they're so short. They're like two stanzas, four lines each. You know, one of them, the spring you'll see is, um, you know, like two words on each line, right? It's very short, very simple. And, um, you know, but, and they're, they're pastorals. So anyway, Wordsworth kind of changed it, but the chunk, the main chunk of human history in all languages, but especially, you know, when it came into English language, um, you know, Dante and, and many people and Petrarch, these are people who wrote um, pastorals and in the pastoral tradition. And generally you're going to get this kind of idle nature, this romanticized view of nature. Whenever I explain this, I always show Thomas Kincaid because he has that kind of view. I think it's, it's almost unreal. There's something that's um, almost too perfect about it. You know, there's no, nothing that looks quite like this. If you're watching, I'll put this up on troubadourmag.com, but if you're on YouTube or Facebook, you could see what I'm looking at now. Um, if you're listening, I'll, you know, go to troubadourmag.com to see the, the image or just like think of a quaint picture, perfect postcard of a cottage in the woods. And that's kind of what a pastoral poem feels like to some degree. Now, on the other hand, I have um, a, 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 a painting up by, I'm going to butcher this name, Jean-Francois Millet. Um, you know, his name is spelled, his last name is spelled M-I-L-L-E-T. I believe that's Millet. Uh, but, you know, in English it's Millet, but I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate that butchering of his name. It's called, the painting is called The Gleaners. This is more in the tradition and I'm just giving you a visual to kind of compare so you understand the, the, uh, the mood that these poems are supposed to invoke. A Georgic is a much more realistic look. It's of rural, of uh, farm life, of life outside the cities. It's much more, you know, he, these are women who are gleaning the land after all the, um, the wheat has been, you know, taken off or, or cut and, and harvested they go around and glean the land and kind of take whatever has fallen off basically. And this kind of realistic aspect of life is a little harsher. It's more difficult. It's challenging. And in fact, in Georgics in, um, by Virgil, he actually, and, and you see this in a little bit in works and days by Hesiod as well. There is a literal, uh, guidebook. Like think if you know anything about the farmer's almanac, it serves the same kind of purpose. So a lot of times it's, there's even instructions on how to, you know, husbandry and, uh, uh harvesting bees and honey. And, the, and then of course, um, so Virgil has a very famous section in book four, uh, where he, he talks about harvesting bees or the, the honey. And, but he also compares it to the kind of war that they are, or the, the life that they're living in Rome at that time. 
So the point is that um, I wanted you to get a feel for these two moods of poems. Now, Blake does not have any Georgics in the Songs of Innocence. Nothing like that. Remember what I've been talking about, if you've seen any, any of the other, other episodes. William Blake in the Songs of Innocence is talking from the aspect of an innocent of a, you know, um, he views it as there are two contrary states in the human soul. There's this innocent side and this experienced side. Of course, children are the most idyllic and innocent, pure in, in a certain sense. They view the world one way. And of course, an adult views the world completely or a slightly different way, but they're going to be always tempered with the innocence. Whereas, um, you know, the, the, um, innocence, and the innocents are even affected by the experience in different ways. And we've been looking at that with the chimney sweeper, especially that was done recently on my podcast and uh, the little black boy and the echoing green and the Piper and things of that nature. Now here we're getting again, a very innocent look at the world, but there always is like a slight little, Hmm, is that like what's going on in the background there? And that's what we're going to get with some of these as well. Um, Although I think one of them you'll see is actually quite just, I'm getting nothing, you know, there's no, in the echoing green, for instance, there, everyone's playing. It's this beautiful green that adults and children and, and old John with his gray hair is playing on the green. But as they leave, you know, it says it, it changes the, the uh, rhyme or the uh, poem changes from the the refrain of the echoing green and all of a sudden it ends with the darkening green and there's always the and that kind of paints a picture like a it tints the entirety of the poem by making you think well wait why what's darkening what's going on and you have to read it again with that in mind and you think and it gives you another shade of what is going on in the poem you're not going to get that much really in these poems these are super straightforward so let me read the first one the shepherd and again, from the Songs of Innocence, very short. How sweet is the shepherd's sweet lot. From the morn to the evening he strays. He shall follow his sheep all the day, and his tongue shall be filled with praise. For he hears the lamb's innocent call, and he hears the ewe's tender reply. He is watchful while they are in peace, for they know when their shepherd is nigh near not n-i-g-h is near now if you read the songs of innocence and experience as a book which i recommend you do i recommend great books like great poetry books like this you don't just read them separated the way i did you read them as much as possible as the um author wanted you to so for instance if i can get this out of here there we go this again go to troubadourmag.com if you're listening but this image here is hand drawn and hand painted by William Blake. And this is how it was originally created for people to read. And you could see that the poem itself takes up, you know, less than a third of the entirety of the page. It's mostly this big tree and then all these sheep. And you have this, um, you know, shepherd with this shepherd's crook watching over them. And they're very calm. And there's a couple over here looking up at him. Most of them are calmly living their lives. And of course you have like many of the uh, pictures that I've shown, you have this kind of darkening aspect in the background. And there's, you know, here you see, it's almost like there's a harsh wind 
that may be coming or something. And, and there's something I think about that, that you're getting in a lot of his poems, that there's this innocence that you're being protected, that everything's good, but there's something coming, right? There's something out there that's a little bit harsh that may be not, um, you know, easy about life. And that is, you know, this poem is so simple. There's not a lot going on, but if you're listening to the, the poems one after another, I think that you'll notice that the shepherd is actually, um, you know, a kind of continuation from the opening poem, which is often called the Piper. And in the Piper, he tells, you know, this is the, the shepherd, by the way, comes right after the Piper and the Piper, you know, it's piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee on a cloud. I saw a child and he laughing said to me, pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper piped that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Piper sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed, and I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear. And I wrote my happy songs every child may joy to hear. Now, if you've been following along in my list, in my um, episodes here, or if you read this, you know, many times yourself and start to think about what the poems are doing and what, he, what Blake is trying to accomplish here, there is something odd in the idea of, you know, in the piper, for instance, you have this child who stands, you know, you have a piper who's a person playing an instrument. Watch my video on that. And you have a child who's basically representing inspiration. And the child at first just wants the piper to um, sing a song. And this is basically an analogy. This poem is an analogy for how we evolved as humans telling stories, right? We did it. First, we were inspired by the muses. Then we sang songs about it. And then we stopped the songs and we picked up a pen and we stained the water clear. It's an interesting thing thinking about staining it clear but there is a, a sense where by putting it down we're losing something right when we when we put something down in pen we lose something of the naturalness of it no matter how good of a writer you are you're never going to completely replace the beauty of nature or the the accuracy of human you know humanity you can never fully do that right you can only get glimpses of it so you have this analogy of the, um, you know, of inspiration and, and writing and creation. And then at the end, you know, the child tells him to, to uh, write these stories. And then the next poem is the shepherd. How sweet is the shepherd's sweet lot from the morn to the evening he strays. He shall follow his sheep all the day and his tongue shall be filled with praise. For he hears the lamb's innocent call and he hears the ewe's tender reply. He is watchful while they are in peace, for they know when their shepherd is nigh. So remember the instruction, Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight and I plucked a hollow reed. So he plucked a hollow reed. He made a rural pen. He stained the water clear and he wrote his happy songs. Every child made joy to hear. So this is a poem that's supposed to be for children. 
one of the things we're starting to see is the kind of agency that children have. And there's a play on that in a lot of these poems and the little black boy, we get the poem, the little black boy, we get a mother like the Piper telling a story, but the story is to a little black slave, her child. And the story is actually to placate him, to make him un, you know, feel okay about his place in this white world. He's in England. He's a slave. And she tells him this, you know, fantasy to make him feel better. And the same thing happens with the chimney sweeper. In the chimney sweeper, we have this story or this dream that little John, Tom Dacker has as they go up in the chimneys in these little coffins of black. And it's basically, if you do your duty, if you, you know, do, be a good boy, if you do what you're supposed to and what you're told, you know, we're all your friends, you and all your friends are going to live in happiness with your father. And the poem begins by the little boy, another little boy being sold by his father to a chimney sweeper after his mother had died. So the, um, so the, there is this motif, this theme that recurs throughout um, William Blake's poems of Songs of Innocence in particular right now, and it's in his Songs of Experience, where the stories we tell serve a purpose, and that purpose may be corrupt or bad, right? And he doesn't say it's bad or good, but he's showing you, he's making you think about it because again, if you look at the reality and we, we all know this, and even the people at this time know this, and you see this more abstractly with the echoing green is that there's something sinister about the way that we're using the stories that we tell children, for instance, to make them feel better about their lot in life. Like, why would you tell a little black boy, um, that he's a, you know, that, that it's his job to shade the sun or to shade the little boy from the sun because the little boy, the little white boy isn't strong enough yet. Right. Which makes the little black boy feel important, but it also puts him in his place. Right. It makes him like be okay. He's at the end. He's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to, he tells that story to, um, his, you know, little white playmate that he knows. And it's like, okay. So what the mother should tell him what we, you know, I think anyway that we should think about is like, she should be telling him stories about uh, heroes who broke free of their chains, killed their masters, and helped free their people, right? Like, those are the kinds of stories she should have been telling him. Instead, she's telling him to placate. It's the slave mentality. And that's the stories we tell shackle us. And there's a, there's a lack of agency because these stories, right? It's not the free-flowing nature of a piper that we get at the beginning of the piper. And there is a taste of that. I mean, this is William Blake's genius in the whole book. You don't get this if you read just these poems one at a time. Is you get a taste of that in this poem even. So here's something about um, shepherds that people in 1789 would know, even if they lived in the city. Shepherds don't follow their sheep. That's crazy. Sheep follow the shepherd. That's the whole point, right? And so there's a weird aspect about like what's happening with his agency. Why is he the one following along the sheep why isn't he leading them and his tongue shall be filled with praise right he's just tell you know there's a lot about in this series of poems about the voiceless ones infant comes from a latin um word basically meaning voiceless like an infant doesn't have a voice 
And so Blake is trying to give these creatures and these people voices. So the shepherd hears the lamb, hears the lamb's innocent call, and he hears their tender reply. He is watchful while they are in peace, for they know when their shepherd is nigh. So there's this kind of idea that this shepherd is watching over them. But we, if we look at it, he's following them. Right? He doesn't know exactly what's going on. His life is just da 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 da. Everything's beautiful and dandy. What are you gonna do when something bad happens? Right? Like that's not in this poem, but. You're going to get that with poems later on, especially in the songs of experience, that there's going to be a much, much darker idea. And then, you know, if one of the questions we're going to have to answer is if the stories that we're telling kids and and ourselves build this society that we're in, and if that society is corrupt and the stories are corrupt and we're having things like slaves and chimney sweepers, young little boys who go up and die en masse, and these horrible conditions, then how do we fix something like that? Like what is the stories, what is corrupt about the stories and how can we do something about that? Especially given the the, uh, sake that it seems like our God or some kind of shepherd isn't even leading us anywhere. It's, you know, he's just kind of there or we think he's there. But again, if the shepherd's following the sheep, the sheep are the ones who are just kind of in a, state of denial. Like if we are the sheep and the shepherd's following us, well then who's like, and we're going off of, you know, uh, just random, whatever we feel like, well, what's, what's going on with, um, you know, where, where we're going. Okay. So let me read the, uh, actually, let me read something real quick. I wanted to give you another quick comparison. This is a, just so you could see a difference between a pastoral and a Georgic. So this is actually from Georgic's And remember, pastorals are kind of quaint, romanticized. There's a sense where it's unrealistic to some degree. So here's from, um, it's just, you know, six quick lines. The time has come for my groaning ox to drag my heavy plow across the fields so that the plow blade shine as the furrow rubs against it. Not till the earth has been twice plowed, so twice exposed to sun, and twice to coolness will it yield what the farmer prays for. So you can kind of see a the farmer's almanac, the kind of teaching aspect of this. I mean, obviously there's a groaning ox. The time has come for my groaning ox to drag my heavy plows. You know, it's not like this quaint little scene. This is a real, this guy has to do real work. You don't see real work really. In pastoral poems, you see, a, again, a, a romanticizing idleness, you know, picture that shepherd. He's just kind of wandering around, not really doing much. It's not that easy to be a shepherd in real life, right? Especially at this period. It's, you know, there's there's work you got to do. You can't just stand around. But that's the view that they have of this, you know, of, of this in pastorals. In Georgics, you get a much more realistic aspect so that the plow blade shines as the furrow rubs against it. So there's a nice little image of the, but again, it's of a real thing, right? It's not like just the the flowers and the butterflies flowing around. It's not that it's, you know, we gotta, we gotta make some work happen. And then there's even a piece of instruction, not till the earth has been twice plowed. you You got to do it twice, my friend, right? So that's what you got to know as a farmer. So twice exposed to sun and twice to coolness will it yield what the farmer pays for. Again, praise for it. Again, it's giving you instruction. 
Okay, let's go into the next poem. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one because I already did a whole video on the lamb and the tiger. So I just want to read it so you can get it in the context of what we're talking about. But please see that video if you want a deeper dive into the lamb because I read the lamb from the Songs of Innocence and the tiger from the Songs of Experience to give you a comparison. And and they, those are actually matched by Wordsworth, or Wordsworth Blake. He does that on purpose. There's a kind of comparison from the, you know, the book of poems is called Songs of Innocence and Experience, showing the two contrary states of the human soul. So a lot of times you get these twin things, the lamb and the tiger, one representing innocence, the other experience, and they really make sense together. More sense. So here's the poem. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed? By the stream and o'er the mead? Gave thee clothing of delight, Softest clothing woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, Making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, For he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a child. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. So I'm going to show on the screen. It pops up. Here we go. This is the way that people would have seen that poem in uh, 1789. Little, the lamb. And you could see a little boy with his lamb. So you saw the shepherd, right? An adult boy following these lambs. And then you see the little boy who's talking to these, you know, he's actually looks like he's feeding or petting a actual little lamb. And, you know, there's obviously a comparison between the innocence of the boy and the innocence of the lamb. And then of course, um, if you know your Bible, your Christian Bible, Jesus was called the, you know, a lamb and he, um, you know, helped, you know, and and we get the idea of sacrificial lamb. So that's another aspect. And again, look at the darkness. If you're looking at the picture, there's like this darkness around the outskirts. So it's even this thing that looks like maybe a storm is coming in. So you have this quaint pastoral, perfect little image, but it's shaped by dark. Okay. Let's go to the next poem. Last poem. Now, this poem is, in a sense, the simplest, and it's kind of a, um, and there is something I'm skipping. I'm skipping in the order of things, the blossom and uh, several other poems, actually. So this poem comes a little bit later, but I wanted you to get all the pastorals together, especially since they were so short. So here's the poem, the, the spring. You'll see how short it is, right? And how simple. Sound the flute, now it's mute. Birds delight, day and night. Nightingale, in the dale. Lark in sky, merrily. Merrily, merrily come to welcome in the year. Little boy, full of joy. Little girl, sweet and small. Cock does crow, so do you. Merry voice, infant noise. 
merrily, merrily to welcome in the year. Little lamb, here I am, come and lick my white neck. Let me pull your soft wool, let me kiss your soft face. Merrily, merrily we welcome in the year. So there's a simple thing with, you know, you get three basic stanzas, three stanzas. The first one is, you know, about the piper again, kind of, right? Sound the flute. Oh, it's mute though, right? Well, why is it mute? Well, one thing is we told him to put it away and, um, you know, put pick out his pen so we don't have a piper anymore. Birds delight day and night. So, we, you know, nightingale in the dale. We're getting this image of just nature, right? Nature just doing what it does. So we are mute now. We are now separated from nature, right? The piper was at one with nature. He had this kind of relationship where he, you know, played, he danced. He, you know, it was just like how a bird, um, certain birds will chirp, right, to each other. That's how humans used to be when they piped, right? They piped. They were this kind of at one with nature. But then we got the word. We got writing. Writing changed all of that. The second stanza, we have humanity, little boy full of joy, little girl sweet and small, cock does crow, so do you, merry voice, infant noise, merrily, merrily to welcome in the year. Right? So all these things, are, of course, this is the, the dawn of something, that's the spring. And so we have just a, you know, a simple little picture of a little boy who's full of joy and a little girl who's sweet and small. And just like the cock does crow, the, the rooster crows, so do you, right? They're kind of like these uh you know innocent creatures that are just like the piper in a certain sense um merry voice infant noise merrily merrily to welcome in the year little lamb here i am come and lick my white neck let me pull your soft wool let me kiss your soft face and then finally we get this image of a lamb and again he's just like the boy the little boy in the poem the lamb he's telling the the you know talking to the lamb to say to Lick my white neck. Let me pet you, your soft wool. Let me kiss your soft face. You know, again, I don't think there's a, a ton going on in that poem complex wise. It's just an image of three things, right? Nature by itself. Um, although man has now been slightly removed from nature, we know from reading the other poems. And then we get a small little picture of a boy and a girl. And then we get a picture of one of them, one of the children asking or talking to an animal. Uh, a lamb in this case, which could be God. But again, if you put it in the context of the little black boy and the kind of stories we tell, it's, it's helpful because one of the questions you have to ask is, so the, the, you know, in the, the little black boy, the mother, the slave mother who, because it starts off by, they were born, the little boy was born in the Southern wilds, which means Africa. Right. And he was brought there with his mother. And then she tells him this story. And the story is to placate him. So what if the story of the lamb or the way that we tell it placates us? Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Right? It may be good. And you get this in these other poems that are very harsh. Is it a bad thing that Tom Dacker who's, who's, um, and the other chimney sweepers, that they have this reassuring tale? Because that's their life. They don't have another option for another life. They can't choose to be a prince. Right? There's not enough ability to do that. So why not let them have this reassuring lie? That's sometimes what people think of as religion is it's a reassuring lie. So that's one of the questions that I think is being brought up in the songs of innocence. 
Now, you know, we'll talk more about this later because it's pretty complex. And I think William Blake has a very complex relationship with religion, but he is highly mystical, highly religious. He, um, and he's one of the, he is probably the most Christian of all the romantics of all the English romantics of this era. And, but he is totally against oppression and repression. He doesn't want anybody to be brought down. So he's questioning some of these things. So, you know, he recognized he's an honest artist. He looks out in the world. He recognizes that part of the issue with, um, you know, the, the uh, slavery at this era in this era, it hasn't been eradicated yet is it's not just the horrible nature of, you know, what we're doing, but it's that how we justify it. Right. So even the slave mother is part of this system. And if you, again, go back to that poem, if you want to see me go into that more detail about this, but because it's not just her, it's all, also, also the stories that, you know, the Christians at that time had certain arguments for slavery and why it was justified that we would keep slaves and, and or, you know, and, at that time. And so there's this idea that it's, it's, um, you know, there's this idea that he's trying to overcome and he, in this era and he wants people not to be oppressed and repressed. And you see the repression part in other poems and he's able to recognize, even though he's a Christian, even though he's pro, he's not pro church, but he's pro the, the ideology. You know, I think of him as like the Jordan Peterson of the poems, right? He likes this deep, you know, thousands of years of tradition and how those stories have evolved over time. And he's going to even add his own stories, of course, or in, not of course, but into this kind of canon. But he's also worried about how it can be used to justify things like slavery and chimney sweepers, young five, six, seven year old boys sent up into their, to their death to suffocate and burn and fall off the top of buildings and die and, and to get testicular cancers. Uh, they didn't know what it was, but the, you know, a lot of boys who survived actually died later. Um, you know, w- once they hit teenage years and, um, you know, they, they would quickly die. So, you know, these kinds of horrible problems are something that William Blake is trying to address in the way that this poet can, and he's being honest about it. He's seeing, you know, this is what's really happening with these kids and with the, the world that we live in, the corruption and how we're destroying the innocence. Okay. So that's the pastoral poems of William Blake's songs of innocence and experience. I hope you enjoyed that and stick around or stay tuned or, or sign up um, on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, troubadourmag.com, whatever you want to um, you know, listen to more of these. I'll be going through all of the songs of innocence and experience and I'll see you next time.